Hey everyone, welcome back to Above Board with Canderpath. Today on episode number 97, which by the way, Matt, like 97 is a good number. That's when Notorious B.I.G.'s Mo Money, Mo Problems came out. Do you remember that? <laughs> that's that's such a rich thing to say. I, I, you know, Rich is not joining us today and we, we miss him dearly though, Rich B. I would have expected that to come from him. I, I don't think I, I learned from the best. Yeah, well, I, I learned from the best, you know? He has the little quips that always come out. That one really came out of left field. And I do like it because th- when you do have Mo Money, you do have Mo Problems. I totally didn't think about that all morning to how I would do that intro. But I did think it was appropriate for what we're talking about today. And we're, we're going to do not so much a Q&A on money and market stuff, but we're going to talk about some things that have happened in the last year and and whether whether it's stocks or bonds. And, and uh, I think something that I wanted to maybe lead with, Matt, is discussing this term, the behavior gap. And for those who haven't heard of it, it was actually coined by... Carl Richards, who's a pretty famous CFP in our industry. And it essentially refers to this idea that there's a difference between making like a wise financial decision versus what we might ultimately or actually do based on like our hardwired emotional state of decision making. So for example, someone might be inclined to double down in the markets when things are peaking, or they might panic sell when things are low. And we know that that's not a good idea. We all want to buy low and sell high. And a lot of times our emotional response is we do the opposite. And I guess the idea or this term came from like, you create this gap between like what you actually returned or, or made versus what you could have if you didn't allow your emotions to override your decision-making process. Yeah, I, I love that quote, John, because I use it a lot in my meetings. You know, I feel like our job as advisors, if, if you had to boil it down, there, there's a number of things that we do. But one of them is, and I say this all the time, is take the emotion out of investing and take the emotion out of finance. If you can remove that emotion and you can look at things not so much with your heart, but with your head, it, it makes it easier. Now, I can say that to a client and I can I can make a plan around it. I find that oftentimes it's hard for myself. And so I I want our clients and I want our listeners to know we deal with that on our own personal financial uh, plan, I, but I find, and I always kind of use the analogy of like a doctor who sees blood. I think I've used that with Rich a few times where like if a doctor, you go to a doctor and his like arm, your arm's chopped off, he doesn't like freak out or she doesn't freak out because there's blood gushing everywhere. They're like, okay, step one is we do this and step two, we do that and step three, we do this and they they go into like doctor mode and I feel like we do that a lot of times in our profession. You know, I remember right around 2020, um, and when COVID came out, I know we're going to talk about that a bit here um, as we kind of look back at the last five years. And, you know, it wasn't, oh my gosh, there's a pandemic, what we haven't seen since 1920. We don't know what to do. It was, hey, step one, we do this. Step two, we do that. And step three, and we sort of take it from there. And it was really interesting talking to our clients during that period of time, which we've talked, we almost talked to every single one in almost a two or three week gap. Uh, and so many of them came to the table with, oh my gosh, Matt. What do we do? Let's hide underneath all the money underneath our mattresses. And, and, and often, in a lot of cases, we did the exact opposite. Those conversations ended, started with that and ended with, okay, so you're saying now is the time to add? And it wasn't so much as making a call rather than looking at a portfolio and using our heads and using mathematics to determine if our weighting is incorrect, then there's, there's, a, there's a way to fix that. And, and yeah. let's go ahead and fix that inside the portfolio. So, um, yeah, I love what you just started with. And I feel like so much of what we do is behavioral finance. And and then, of course, applying, applying our trade to, to that. For us, it's it's 
Uh, I always talk to clients about being very rules-based. So what are the rules that we create? Or for clients, we call it our investment policy statement. But what are these rules that we create? And then we abide by them. I like the doctor comparison because in those situations, you know, like when someone sees blood and panics, they, they freak out. A doctor is trained to know not to do that, to know to the exact thing that they're supposed to do in that moment. I think for us, the emotion that typically is um, comes up for grabs when it comes to money is fear and greed. Like you're, you're always playing on those two sides of the coin. Those things are at an all-time high when it comes to money. And the behavioral finance side of it is we're trained to know and to talk through clients about how to work through those emotions. And if we create these very systematic rules that we put in place for, let's say, their investments, hopefully we're able to, to override that, that maybe irrational side of thinking. Yeah. And I think rightly so someone feels that way. I mean, this is their hard earned money and it, this is money True. that needs to last them theoretically their entire lives. And, and we need to subside that fear of, you know, living your money. And I really agree with what you just stated. A lot of that just comes down to creating a plan. And and we talk about it oftentimes in our meetings. It's like, Hey, we're going to take a, we're taking a road trip across the country. You know, at the very beginning of our road trip, we just need to know, are we supposed to go north, south, east, or west? And that's sort of that very beginning foundation to be laid. And then once we get on this road trip, we know, okay, if we're going from Florida to California, we're going to head west. We're going to take I-10. I'm just making numbers up here at this point. And hey, if we have to get off somewhere because we have a flat tire, you know, we know those specific points that that we can get off and and put that tire back on and inflate it and get back on the road again. And And really kind of taking that as that long-term plan. If there's a plan in place, we we know what to do during times where the, where the market is 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 trending backwards or in in a really worst case scenario which we're going to think talk about in more detail like where the market is flat for a number of years. I've mm-hmm. often said, "Hey, the market goes up big, everyone's happy. It goes down big, we can explain that and there's oftentimes opportunities in, in a in a big decline when it moves sideways for a number of years." I think everyone just sort of looks and is like, what What are we doing here? And they forget, hey, there's a bigger picture involved. And they get really stuck on that small picture of, gosh, things haven't really moved a lot. Are we Are we going to hit those goals down the road? And, and a good plan really looks at all of the various potential outcomes and, and assigns us you know, a, a percentage or at least an avenue of, of how do we make this work. I think we all run the risk of looking at life in a short-term window. So it's it's easy for us to say, "Hey, let's, you know, we're planning for we're planning for decades in advance for people most oftentimes." And so, but it's still easy to live in gosh, I saw this on the news. <clears throat> this is happening right now. I'm hitting the panic button. I'm freaking out. Like we live in this short-term now mentality. Uh the, a lot of the conversations I'm having as we're recording this, you know, almost middle of November of 2023, a lot of the conversations I'm having already are about the election year next year and what that's going to mean. And, and it's, let's going back to the roadmap analogy where maybe you have a flat tire that you need to change, or you take these detours. If we look back at the map for the last five years, I don't know how far, how much detail we, we need to go into, but like, I remember at the end of 2018, we experienced market volatility in 2020, of course, everybody knows what happened in March of 2020. I mean, we had the the largest drop in the shortest amount of time. I think it was like 
more than 30% in three weeks on the Dow Jones. I mean, it was, and it ended insane. up positive it, it, at the end of the year, right? was actually a fair, Wild. if you, if you took that major drop out, or if you did not panic during that and did not move to cash and try to time this whole thing in and out, if you just sort of stayed the course, which was what our method, our, our what was our philosophy at the time. Yeah. And stayed, you actually had a really, fairly decent. Yeah. It still is that, that uh, philosophy, but you actually had a fairly decent year that year. And, but short of that, there wasn't too many more past that. Yeah. And then, okay, so then let's let's fast forward to what everyone, again, you know, the, the we have this recency bias of all the things that have happened to us recently or what's upcoming soon. When I look back for the last less than two years, like I go back to the beginning of 2022, we have this very, I just remember it as a very interesting time. Like the, that Q1 of 2022, all these reports were starting to come out, which we weren't necessarily surprised about, but we had inflation running wild. It was this uncontrollable number that everybody was concerned about. We had a war happening, you know, starting in Ukraine. And at that time, like January 1 of 2022, the Fed funds rate was virtually zero, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to today, and there's a lot of life that happened in between that. But if you fast forward to November 2023, it's, what is it, 5.3? Three? Do you have the number? It's like five point three to five point five, something like that. And so that that had a massive impact for people. And most of the time, when you hear that, everyone associates that with real estate because they're like, "Well, I, you know, the thirty year thirty year mortgages touched like eight percent last month, and they've come off a little since then." But but what we experienced, and what retirees, clients that we worked with experienced, was how that impacted their bond side of the portfolio, which is always supposed to be very stable. It was this unprecedented rise by the Federal Reserve. And the move was effectively to manage and deal with inflation. Do you want to talk to that one a little bit? Because yeah, I think that's I, what's I, on everybody's mind over the last you know, 15, that's 18 sort, months. That sort of definitely cuts both ways, right? Our cost to borrow has gone up significantly. Um, and what was the purpose of that rise? I think it's important. And this is where Michael uh, Scott in our office really would come in and give us a Shout very out. detailed analysis. But I think our our simplistic overview of it is, you know, that the Fed was doing their best to curb inflation. And the way you do that is you attempt to slow down the economy. And the way you do that is you raise rates, make the cost of borrowing more expensive for companies, which theoretically maybe there's various things that go into this, but slowly begin to slow down the economy. So that 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 sword cuts both ways in that it costs more to purchase a home. It costs more if you're, you know, funding your life through credit cards or using some other debt mechanism. But for our clients inside of the portfolios, there's two things that really occurred. One is the value of bonds, which have historically been fairly stable and never really have hit a grand slam, really had a major push backwards. And that led to a lot of conversations. Do we get rid of bonds? Well, bonds are, are meant, there's a, there's a reason that we have fixed income inside of our portfolios. And that fixed income is there for, maybe it's for income purposes, it's for some theoretically some stability, some diversification away from stocks. Um, so there's a purpose to having it inside there. But when interest rates rise very rapidly over a very short period of time, you're going to see a negative rate of return on on those fixed income. Some of the things that we try to do is shorten that duration, shorten the, yeah. the length of those bonds to minimize that risk or to to mitigate it a little bit. And the, But the upside is that, hey, listen, our money market rates are are pushing, you know, four and a half, five percent. And, you know, that that is hopefully to combat a little bit of the inflation that's incurring. But, you know, 
last time we we talked about a five percent money mark. I mean, goodness gracious, I've been in this business since two thousand and oh my gosh, two. I hate to say three, but yeah, it's the twentieth year. You know, I I can Yikes. remember only a very handful of years that we were you know trying to find the best performing money market account. Other than that, it was you know one or two percent, if 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 that. And I started in the industry during the Great Recession of two thousand and eight. And something that I learned, and I actually, I want to explain this analogy because I think it's helpful when it comes to bonds. Because like hearing you say, oh, okay, well, rates went up, bond values went down. That's, that is a little confusing to, I think, fully wrap your head around. And the best way that I've learned it over the years, going back to early on in my career was, if you think about it, like if you're buying a, let's say you're you're in the market for buying a, a $10,000 bond from a company and the yield on that bond is 4%. And you you buy that, right? Like you buy that bond and 30 days later, the rates go up, you know, Fed raises Fed funds rate over the next 30, 60, 90 days. And that same exact bond is no longer at four, it's at four and a half percent. And I'm, I'm looking, now I'm in the market to buy a bond. And so I want to buy a $10,000 bond at five, not at four. These are extreme examples, but just kind of making the point. And Matt, you come to me and you're like, no, 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 John, hey, don't don't actually buy that bond directly from the issuer at 5%, $10,000 denomination. I'll just sell you mine. And I'd go, what are you crazy? Like, I'm not going to buy your bond that you, I know you just bought it, but I'm not buying it from you because you paid, you paid, you got four, you're getting 4% on that bond. I can go get a brand new bond at five. Like the prevailing market is now 5%. And so the only way that I would ever agree or consider to purchasing your bond from you is if you sold it to me at a discount, right? Like you paid 10,000 for it, but you say, Hey, you know what? I'll take a haircut on. I'll sell it to you, John, for 9,000 so that, you know, I can, I can unwind this. I need to get out of this investment product or something. I know that's like an extreme example, but it kind of helps for me when I explain that to clients, give that frame of reference of like, Oh, okay. So yields like rates went up and that means the prevailing bonds that we own, potentially the value of those went down. Does that make sense? I love that analogy. And okay. I, I use Thanks. the same one, but then I have to talk about length of bonds because I think that that's just as important as yeah. the conversation you just had. So I, I look at more of like a seesaw, you know, back in the day in the seesaw. So a very short, you know, do you, do you remember doing this? Um, you know, riding that seesaw, going up and down your buddy on the other end, and then he or she just jumps off of it and it comes right up and smacks you. Do you remember doing that? I mean, I distinctly yes. remember that. I probably have yeah, scars from that. So let's use that analogy and let's go with that. So if that seesaw is really, really short, so your buddy is like within arm's reach from you and he or she jumps off of it, kind of no big deal, right? It was, you could kind of get off at the right time. That short seesaw, no big deal. But as the longer the seesaw is and you're at the top or you're at the bottom and your buddy jumps off and it comes up and it just kind of smacks you, the longer that is, the more painful that impact is. And that's a really great way to, des- to describe what's happening in the bond market. I think so- it's hilarious. I just, I just see us like, you know, Raina hearing this and she's like, hey, we're going to do a little marketing campaign. You and Matt are going to be on a seesaw at the park and you're definitely- going to explain how this works while you're actually on a seesaw. I just we don't know who's do the one that our jumps podcasts. off. Yeah, we should do this on a That, that would have been oh a very good God. visual for this. Um, okay, so anyways, back to this. So uh, let's let's continue with my my analogy. We just did yours. Now it's my turn. So let me speak. Here we go. So the long seesaw, more pain, more movement up and down. And that's the great way to describe the length of these bonds. 
So what can we do as interest rates begin to rise is we can shorten the the length of the bonds that we're buying. Instead of buying a 20 or 30 year bond, we can buy a, a one or two or three year bond. Still going to have pain, right? There's still going to be movement up and down, but we do what we can to mitigate that. So let's talk about the other end of this, John. Interest rates have, and again, we're not prognosticating, I think on this podcast, but Pretty close to peaking, right? Fed funds rate you just mentioned is about 5.5%. The cost that banks charge each other to lend money back and forth could go higher. Definitely could. Uh, But let's just hypothetically say today's the peak. And let's just say the the Fed sees enough, the the folks that control our economy and our interest rates see enough and say, hey, listen, okay, it's high enough. Let's start coming back down again and, and let's start this economy back going. Let's just say it slows down. And it moves in the other direction. So let's use your same analogy there, John. Interest rates are now coming down. You have your 5.5% bond and new issues today drop to 4.5%. How does that analogy work on the down, on the downswing? Are you asking me? I, I'm yeah, come, now I'm, it's your turn. I, you have me memorized, mesmerized. I was, just, I was just listening and watching. So yeah, the, it's literally the opposite, of course. So as rates start to go down the value of those bonds that we own go up in value. Exactly. And and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so that's why we, and I think it, the whole point of this particular conversation is why we don't abandon our approaches, right? Why do we not get rid of bonds when when the, when interest rates rise is the same reason why we don't get rid of stocks when the market goes down. It's meant to be part of an overall portfolio and it's meant to have rebalancing. It's meant to have some small changes and and maybe some big changes depending on where your life goes but Mm -hmm. the abandoning of our portfolio and bending of of portfolio theory does not happen because an asset moves up and down in value it gets adjusted and and small minute changes take place and that's the message we really want to get across to, to clients and those that are listening to this is that making large changes based upon rear view looking policies is a recipe for absolute disaster You've got to be forward thinking and you've got to have a plan. And with those two things, along with budgeting, along with organizing your finances, along with some of those very basic uh, ideas that we kind of discussed in, in previous episodes, you blend all those together. It's really hard to, to mess things up too, too badly. Well, and this is why we preach. This is why we preach diversification, of course, and flipping the conversation to stocks or equities. You know, you look at 2022 and it really was this this perfect storm of interest rates go up, bond values go down. And so uh, I think the Barclays Ag was, which is sort of the, uh, it's a composite view of, of, of bonds was down something north of like 14 or 15% last year. And then on top of that, you had stocks going down as well last year. And, but to your point, and there were, there are a multitude of reasons why that happened, but to your point, we don't abandon that strategy because you know that that level of diversification when stocks do well or they go up like you, you can't you know I, this is a conversation i have not so much with clients but like when friends come to me and they're like hey what are you doing like what what are you guys doing right now and i think sometimes people have this perception that you know we're we're like oh we're all you know the whole portfolio is in cash now and and now the whole the whole portfolio is in cryptocurrencies or <laughs> something crazy it's it's having these extreme swings of the pendulum from one direction to the other is never what a, that's not how a sound strategy is based upon it's based you notice that those people around you that do those big swings you hear only about the good stuff right yeah. you never hear like oh yeah i swung in the wrong direction and just had a humongous whiff 
um, kind of going back to your point, John, um, and I'll use the Dow Jones just as a as a you, you talked about the Barclays aggregate from the fixed income side. Um, if you look at the the Dow, just just as a metric, I don't I don't think it's what we are judging things against, but I think it's a it's a benchmark, right? Everybody and everybody listening to this podcast has heard of yeah, that. they know the Dow you know, Jones. It's a, it's a yeah. collection of you know thirty stocks that are uh, you know large large cap um, stocks here in the United States. Over the last five years, um, the, the the Dow Jones stocks are up. I don't know. Let's just call it thirty five percent, just to take make math easy. I think it's thirty three point thirty three percent. But I, I'm I'm not great with math, so I want to just keep it. Really <laughs> yeah, you better be. Am I supposed to say that out loud? No, I am really good with math. Um, but let's just say it's thirty five, so I can keep my numbers easy. And you say, okay, last five years, the Dow Jones is up thirty five percent. Wow, seven percent a year. Uh, is what the rate of return is. Man, fantastic. We know that that's not what happened. That's not the way that it worked. Over that last five-year period, I think if you looked at calendar years, the market was up two, maybe three of those five years. Mm-hmm. And part of that was 2020, which had huge as swings as we just talked about a moment ago. So how did you how do you get that 35%? You don't get it by sliding it out. You, you had to go through the tough years. Um, you had to stay committed to your plan. You had to have a good diversification strategy. You had to make sure that you were not putting all of your eggs in one basket. You were not making these major swings uh, mm-hmm. after a bad year moving to cash and after a good year adding more to the portfolio, keeping a very good plan in place. That's how you end up capturing that rate of return. Again, not by not by going to the casino and betting it all on black. It's It's by having a plan. And I always have to kind of remind our clients of that because if you're watching CNBC and and watching you know some of the talking heads on there, they're there for show, right? That's entertainment in a lot of in a lot of sense, and we have to remove that from from reality because not all times it's 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 reality based. I feel compelled to do a little bit of simple math to just shed some light on what you talked about because I I get this question a lot and I think this is important. You know, it's like. Uh, you know, oh, uh, portfolio is up thirty percent. It's down thirty percent. That's the same thing, and it's not. So, like, so, 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 really simple math. Like, if you have a hundred bucks, and that hundred dollars does the hypothetical. Of course, this isn't real, but that hundred dollars has a fifty percent gain. What is the result of that hundred dollars? The hundred hundred and fifty bucks, right? But the problem about losses is that you only need about a thirty three percent loss to be back to square one with that hundred bucks. Right, so hundred dollars grows by fifty percent, becomes one hundred fifty dollars. Then the markets drop down thirty, like let's call it thirty three percent. You're from you know, 100, 150 back to hundred bucks. So in other words, avoiding a thirty three percent loss can be just as valuable as achieving a fifty percent gain. And I think that's where diversification becomes so important. We put these rules in place because you know it, it's it's impossible to know or to prognosticate what's going to happen, like you said. But when you were talking about the Dow and like you know, looking at average returns over a five-year stretch. I think that's part of the roller coaster that people tend to forget when they look at like a, you know, an index. They're like, oh, it was up this number. It's like, yeah, but what does the actual invested dollar amount look like? And I, I use that that simple math a lot of times for people because it helps helps people realize like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that, you know, it's yeah. not a 50% loss. It's, a, it's, it's less of a loss to get back to the same number. Yeah, and, and again, it's it's math. It's math based, and I I think again a part of our job is to be able to explain that, to describe it, to have people understand what's happening with their finances. 
I think um, as we kind of pivot to the next subject, I think it's important for a client to know what phase of life they're in. I, I think that sounds sort of silly to say it out loud, but we have those clients that we label as accumulators. And that is someone who's still in the workforce, someone who theoretically is, is has excess earnings and is adding to their portfolio, um, adding to savings, building for tomorrow, living for today as well, but but building for tomorrow. Uh, and then we have our clients who are who are income producing, those who clients who are retired. And that's a completely different strategy. And I think it's important for us to kind of dive into what those two, uh, what are some of the keys for for both of those groups of people, um, those who are accumulators. So let me, let's start with those. And those are typically our clients who are, you know, below age, call it 60. And they might be in their 20s right now and they might have had their first job or they might, you know, be accumulating money inside of their 401ks maybe doing their IRAs. Maybe we have a small business owner who's putting a lot of money back into their company. Uh, there, there's a lot of different labels that we can apply to them, but accumulators in general really should have their eye on the long-term prize. And that long-term prize, again, is making sure that there is a, a plan. That plan needs to have a, a lot of contingencies built into it. So in case someone's laid off, that there's sufficient savings, that we're not tapping into credit cards. We're not you know, having to borrow our way out of a problem. So we need to make sure that that is there. Really good organization. We know where all the accounts are. We we can account for them. We know what's inside of each one of these accounts and what they're doing. But really, really looking more for a longer term picture and looking less at a one year or two year or what's it doing today rather than, hey, if I continue this and I get a little bit of help from investing, this is where I'm going to be at the ending point. And I think yeah. that that's really important. I think for for those folks, I, I talk to them about leaning into the things that you can control. So when there's all this chaos around you of market volatility or concern about the economy, and these things that are stressing you out, well, what can you control? You can actually lean into not only continuing to fund your retirement strategy, but maybe even adding more dollars to it, knowing that you're potentially buying in securities or in the market when it's at a bargain, when it's at a good price point. And on the flip side, if, if it's okay if I jump to that, for the retiree segment of the clients that we serve, where we're having a lot of conversation, it's it's almost the opposite. When we're having market volatility conversation, it's like, okay, well, what now what can we control? Can we control um, maybe the withdrawals, the distributions? So no, no longer are we adding to the investment portfolio. We're in this phase of life where we're now taking from it. We're living from it. And so can we control that number, maybe reduce the withdrawals we're taking? And in either one of those scenarios, it goes back to budgeting. It, it, you know, when we talk about what are the things you can control, it goes back to your budgeting. And this is a bit of a, a shameless plug, but we're at the final stages of, of an e-course that we're creating where there's a, a, a total section dedicated to how your money flows. And it's all about, you know, the monies that come in the door and out the door and how you budget, and how you cash flow and how you see your money. And I feel like that is probably the single greatest thing that someone, no matter what phase of life that they're in, that they can that they can influence. Because then ultimately, if you're, let's say, the example you gave, you're in this this build or accumulation phase of life, you're growing, you're adding. Well, if you can control the budget and find ways to save and add more in those scenarios, even better. Absolutely. And I think something that is characteristic of the accumulator is that most of the time they're not putting large lump sums of money in, but it's happening on yeah. a monthly or quarterly basis, right? So again, less concern about timing the stock market or timing the bond market or timing any investment. And it's more of just kind of put your head down and keep doing it. 
Um, I think on the retiree side, I, I love the words that you state because I use it a lot. Let's let, there's lots of things to worry about in this world. Let's just worry about the things that we can control. And we can control our allocations and our exposures and where the money goes, but we can't control rate, rates of return of of a of a market of an indices of an investment. And I think to your point, there are a number of tools in a high interest rate environment we're in right now that really does favor the the retirees. And I think some of them listening to this will say, well, yeah, that's great, Matt, but also the price of goods and services have gone up. And I would say, yes, back to the budget. Maybe we have to kind of pull back a little bit right now when the price of milk and eggs and all of these things, we go to Publix or we go to you know our grocery stores and it's more expensive. Maybe we buy a little bit less right now. And then when inflation subsides itself, we can kind of pick back up again. It goes back to the budget. In 2020, when the world was coming to a screeching halt, the Marcuse, we looked at our budget and said, okay, what is everything that's essential and what is not essential? Eating out is not essential. Um, you know, buying things on, on Amazon, although is somewhat essential, it was not essential. Let's lock this whole thing down and let's just hunker down for a bit. Let's just see what this, how, how long this happens for. We have no idea. And we can, we can, you know, sort of control where our expenses are. And I, I often say that a, a lot to our retirees. The other thing that I get from retirees a lot, John, and you might get this too, is, hey, I'm retired. Let's put all of it inside of a fixed income. That, that's what my parents did that worked, served them well. And, and let's, let's just pick one strategy and go with it instead of diversifying. Um, and this is one that I get a lot. And I think a lot of it has to do with the behavioral finance side. And maybe that retiree right now was born in the you know, late 40s, um, maybe early 50s right now, maybe even mid 50s. And I have to think about what was happening there when they were growing up, right? So if they were born in the 40s or 50s, they were kind of, you know, I, I, I'm seeing my son now who's who's 10, um, my other son who's seven, they're starting to kind of like understand like the way things work a little bit. So if I'm putting my myself back in those retiree shoes, born in the 40s, born in the 50s, that means they were kind of growing up in the 60s and 70s. What was what was happening in the 60s and 70s in our country? And it, it mimics a lot of what occurred these last two years where you had high inflation, you had very high interest rates in the country. Um, and what happened as as things progressed year over year, what were, what were interest rates doing basically from the 80s and 90s all the way through the last few years? They were coming down, right? The interest rates were, were really low after that huge rise in the 70s and, and early 80s. So bonds did and fixed income did really, really well during that period of time because you had this massive pullback of, of interest rates and inflation was subsiding. And so you know, again, some of that's coming back to itself, which is why we don't want to abandon our philosophy of of our portfolio and our portfolio construction because we don't know what tomorrow holds, and we want to make sure that we don't just have all of our eggs in a single basket, but we have them we have them spread out as much as we can to accomplish the, the overall goal, which is making retirement happen and hopefully not running out of money. Can I go back to one thing that you said? Um, so, so of course, in in no matter what phase of life you're in budgeting and, and being mindful. And like you said, the Marku family in 2020 hunkered down, was very mindful of where spending was going. I want to share this too. No matter what phase of life you're in, nobody is exempt, in my opinion, from needing a emergency bucket. You, you, I mean, you, you have to have a, an emergency savings number, conventional wisdom, you know, that we learn when we go through 
you know, our, our advisor training and becoming certified financial planners is that it's three to six months worth of expenses. But maybe that's more for you. You know, maybe maybe in retirement, you feel that you'd be you'd be at a more pl- a place of peace and comfort having it be nine months or 12 months. I don't know what the number is, but I can say this universally, you need one. Mm. Because that is, I mean, the average American right now, the savings rate, by the way, is 4.1%. So we talk about finding ways to budget to save more for the accumulators, 4.1%, we can do better. The, and the average American is carrying like five to $6,000 of credit card debt at any given time. And we're maybe two paychecks away from bankruptcy, the average American. That's, I mean, of course, you know, there's circumstances that call for that. And that's, you know, life circumstances, be it as they may, like those things happen, but no one is absolved from needing an emergency bucket for all the reasons I just shared and everything we've talked about for the last half hour, I think. Yeah, it's it's such a great point because where do you go when that air conditioning blows up? Where do you go when you know there's a medical incident and you need to cover your deductible? Where do you go for those things? And if the answer is I go to credit cards or I build debt, that's not a great answer, right? The answer is I gotta I gotta have a place. And, and and the nice thing about having higher interest rates right now, again, the downside is the inflation and things we talked about. The higher side is that is that, that money market account and and that side emergency account should be having a little bit of a of a push of a little bit of a tailwind behind it and and getting and making that grow even a little bit, even though historically that has not been really an account or or a priority of our savings accounts is to have them earn anything. It's really there for us when life rears its ugly head and we have to tap into it. I I'm I really enjoy this conversation because at first I thought we were going to spend probably the majority of our time just talking about p- put that diversification in play, you know, have have that plan for your investments and and continue to monitor that and stay the course, which is true. Of course, that's good advice, but I think where we where we ended with was really focusing on these things that you have daily control over like your budgeting your spending where where money's going and as we wrap today what do you, do you have any just final parting words of wisdom for our listeners yeah a couple money tips or anything that you want you'd this, like to share this podcast today was so easy because it's things that we john and i say every single day and right. if you're a client and you you've listened to this entire show you've heard every single word that has come out of my mouth or john's mouth you've heard this in a meeting uh, we typically meet with our clients somewhere anywhere from one to four times a year, depending on the need and necessity. I find myself uh, in even some of those that happen every 90 days saying the same things over and over again. And I have no problem doing that because we're reinforcing really good, strong financial concepts that we need everyone to remember. And I know how busy our clients are. Uh, 90 days for them, they've felt sometimes have lived a lifetime in that 90 day period. And they don't remember the words that I said you know, six months earlier or, or four months earlier. And so I have no problem repeating myself and I have no problem reinforcing the why. And it all comes down to the why behind we do what we do. And it's it's really a lot of what we do is financial education. Um, now we execute it after that, but we first have to teach people what are some of the really smart money management tips that for our combined 35 years of experience that we have seen, we have such a unique perspective of being able to see 250 different groups of people and how they've lived their lives. And from that, we take the bits and pieces from each one of those and we build this perfect avatar of the way to do it. 
Now, not everything's going to fit into this perfect little bubble, but we have such great experience of being able to see the ones that have done it right, the ones that have stumbled along the way, and what were the attributes to both of those. And let's make sure we avoid those stumbles and that we reinforce the ones that really made it work well, that have struck that balance between saving for tomorrow and living for today, have had savings, have had a budget, and have had a financial plan that is moving with them as they go through life. I love that. Amen. Matt Marcoux for president. Amen. 2024. <laughs> well, I'm I'm gonna wrap <laughs> I'm gonna wrap it with the stock market is like a bad cold. And I I this is silly, but also very something I've experienced in the last like two weeks. I've had this like head cold that, as you know, I cannot seem to shake. And Anyone who's had that before, like you ache, you're stuck in bed, you're tired, you don't feel good, and you pretty much convince yourself, like every day you wake up and it feels worse, you're like, is this ever going to get better? And then like a few days go by and, you know, the illness kind of starts to go away and you recover and maybe the recovery takes longer than you expected. But at the end of the day, like there are brighter days ahead. And I think the stock market's like that. Another analogy I love using is that it goes up like a stairs and down like an elevator. And, and, but we can't control when that's going to happen, you know, maybe over longer stretches of time in a more normalized market cycle, it'll go up over time, but it it goes down like an elevator. It feels like anyway, oftentimes. And so to everything that you shared and that we talked about today, it's like having that plan, controlling the controllables, that is what is so, so important. So thank you everyone for listening to us here on above board with Canterpath. We are only a couple episodes away from episode 100, which blows my mind. And then at the beginning of 2024, we're coming back at you with a, a new season, season three and a refresh look. So we'll share more as we get there. But um, thanks again. And we'll see everybody next week. See ya.